Documented stories of near-death experiences go back as far as the 1890s. French psychologists tried to give a term for the accounts of mountain climbers who say they experienced a panoramic review of their life's history during the falls that brought them nigh to death. Through the years, accounts of those that have been clinically dead and been resuscitated have had some common threads of description that have been classified as stages. At the first stage, there is a sense of peace. Then there is an out-of-body experience, a feeling of separation from the body. Next, there is a concept of entering into a darkness, followed by the sight of an inviting light. And then there is the entering into that light. Studies suggest that only 60% experience stage one, whereas only 10% ever recall experiencing the last stage of entering the light. As you can probably guess, there are a myriad of explanations as to what is taking place in these moments of extreme bodily distress. There are psychological explanations, such as depersonalization, disassociation, and fantasy proneness. There are physiological explanations that involve the sudden release of bodily chemicals which affect the temporal lobes of the brain. Then there are also spiritual theories that see such experiences as proof of an afterlife and open up a wide range of cultural and religious explanations. But not every near-death experience involves a flat line on the EKG. Not every near-death experience contains an out-of-body feeling or an attraction to a welcoming or peaceful light. Most people, at one time or another, have all had such near-death experiences. A childhood bike ride that was a near-miss for an oncoming car. The just-out-of-reach forklift accident at a job site. The last-second swerve that saved you from a massive and more than likely fatal car crash. Each of these represent moments in time when we are struck with the reality that we could have been killed. But for whatever reason, we stepped clear at the last moment and were spared. Most people may attribute this to some latent evolutionary instinct which sparked a sense of danger that caused us to zig instead of zag. But there is an explanation that lies outside of our own ability and intuition. An explanation that reveals a God that guides our steps through such places. Sometimes we can recognize His unseen hand leading us to safety. But many times, we never even realize how near we came to the experience of death. Most of us will never know on this side of eternity how many times a set of missing car keys and a slight delay in traffic spared our lives. But there is one instance in history where on a clear moonlit night, the life of a relatively unknown Union soldier was spared, only to find out a decade and a half later that the great shepherd had rescued his lamb from the jaws of certain death. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. Ira Sankey was born on August the 28th, 1840 in Edinburgh, Pennsylvania to David and Mary Sankey. Being faithful Methodist, they would spend many an evening gathered together singing old hymns of the faith. 
Although he had a natural musical talent, Ira Sankey's ability to sing came to the forefront during these family gatherings. By the time he was eight years old, he could sing by musical composition. Although he was raised in church all of his life, it was not until he was 16 years old that he was converted to Christ during revival meetings at King's Chapel, not too far from his boyhood home. His new faith drove him to service for the Lord Jesus with zeal. He labored in the church as a Sunday school superintendent and teacher, along with leading the church choir. He also at this time joined his father working at the local bank in his late teenage years. But it wasn't long after that the nation was plunged into a civil war, and Ira was one of the first to answer the call for troops. He enlisted in the Union Army shortly after war was declared and was part of a company that was sent to Maryland. Although many a young man's faith has been made shipwrecked by the temptation of a soldier's life, Sankey maintained a steady walk with the Lord. He was not only a brave soldier, but he was zealous for Christ among the other men. His singing ability made him a favorite among his regiment. He organized groups of men to sing and assisted the army chaplain in camp worship services. After the war, Sankey went back to work with his father, but not at the bank. His father had been appointed by President Lincoln to be a collector of internal revenue. Ira joined his father in this work, but his heart was for serving the Lord through song. As he sang in different meetings and special services, word of his inspiring talent spread. Before long, he was receiving invitations to sing all over western Pennsylvania and eastern Ohio. He could be found singing at denominational conventions, Bible conferences, and political rallies. He was gone so much that his father was quoted as saying, I'm afraid Ira will never amount to anything. All he does is run around the country with a hymn book under his arm. Ira's quick-witted mother shot back, Well, I'd rather see him with a hymn book under his arm than a whiskey bottle in his pocket. In June of 1870, Ira made a trip to Indianapolis, Indiana for an international convention for which he had been appointed a delegate. He was anxious and excited about the trip for he had learned that the popular evangelist D.L. Moody would be there. He had heard and read much about the work of Moody in Chicago and was looking forward to hearing him preach. He arrived to the service a little late that morning, but found a seat next to a Presbyterian minister that he knew. History suggests that the singing during the morning meeting was dull and spiritless. The Presbyterian minister beside Sankey encouraged him to stand and sing at the next opportunity. As Moody requested a song, Sankey stood and sang the song, There is a fountain filled with blood. He did it with such heartfelt emotion that it wasn't long before the building rang with the voices of all present. The meeting took on a whole new energy as God worked in the hearts of many. Following the meeting, Sankey was formally introduced to Moody, who instantly began to ask very direct questions about his family and career. Sankey had been married not long after the war, and he had one child. He told Moody that he was working in the government at the time. Moody remarked, Well, you'll have to give that up. Why, Sankey replied, a little surprised at the remark, to come help me in my work at Chicago. Sankey said, I can't leave my business. Moody responded, You must. I have been looking for you for eight years. Although Ira was very hesitant about such a major decision, Moody invited him to meet him on a certain street corner the following day. When Sankey arrived, Moody pointed to a large wooden crate asking him to stand up there and sing something. Sankey complied 
and sang the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? People stopped what they were doing and began to gather around to hear him sing. People came from everywhere. Following the song, Moody took his turn on the box and began to address the large crowd that had gathered to hear Sankey's singing. Moody preached and the people hung on his every word. Even in such a spontaneous event, it was clear that something special had been discovered. Although it would be another six months before Sankey would give in to Moody's request, a lasting bond of friendship and a spirit of partnership in the work of God was formed that day, a relationship that God would use to powerfully impact the world. Later that year, at 30 years of age, Sankey began to work with D.L. Moody in Chicago. Sankey had not been working long with Moody when the Great Fire raged through the city of Chicago in October of 1871. Sankey narrowly escaped danger to his own life during this tragedy. Although Moody and his family were saved, he lost practically everything. By the following year, Sankey had moved his whole family to Chicago to help Moody rebuild. They also began evangelistic campaigns in various cities as their partnership grew even stronger. At the events, the plain-spoken Moody would arrest the attention of his hearers with compelling words of gospel truth. Then Sankey would conclude the appeal for sinners to respond with songs of earnest emotion. And people would respond. They would respond to the message of the gospel, believing on Jesus Christ night after night after night. In 1873, Moody and Sankey, along with their families, traveled to the British Isles to begin a series of meetings for which they had been invited to by two well-known pastors. Upon their arrival, it seemed as though the campaign would end before it ever even got started. The two pastors that had invited them had died and there were no scheduled meetings. Although Moody had preached in England before, he was not widely known. Remembering a standing invitation in the city of York to come and preach if he ever returned to England, Moody made arrangements for evangelistic services to begin there. Despite the fact that as few as 50 people came to the first night, attendance quickly escalated when a leading Baptist minister of the city, F.B. Meyer, gave his hearty endorsement to the meeting. And from there, invitations began to come in from all over the country. D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey spent the next two years in evangelistic campaigns all over Britain, Scotland, and Ireland. Thousands were converted to Jesus Christ during these years. A spirit of revival swept over city after city, igniting churches and changing communities. It has been said through Moody and Sankey, God, quote, gave Britain perhaps the greatest spiritual movement since the days of George Whitfield and John Wesley, end quote. Truly, it was England, not America, which discovered the evangelistic team of Moody and Sankey. By the time they returned to the U.S. in 1875, D.L. Moody and Ira Sankey were household names. They took the North American continent by storm, holding meetings all over the U.S., in Canada and Mexico. The impact of their ministry has left an indelible mark that is still seen to this very day. Their evangelistic work continued well into the late 1890s. It is unclear just how many lives were changed by God's usage of these two men. If one were to include the lasting legacy of their writings, songs, and educational institutions, 
their impact could well be in the millions of souls added to the kingdom of God. There is little doubt that what we know of D.L. Moody and God's usage of him is due in large part to the musical contribution of Ira Sankey. In fact, D.L. Moody was once asked about the importance that a gospel singer or a song leader such as Ira Sankey brought to his meetings. Moody responded, quote, If we can only get people to have the words of the love of God coming from their mouths, it's well on its way to residing in their hearts, end quote. But all that God had accomplished through these men might not have been. All the millions of people that gathered to hear the words that they would sing and speak might not have come. All of the souls that were saved, all of the lives that were changed, all of the families that were put back together might have remained lost, wayward, and broken. All of the educational institutions and the soul-stirring songs might not have been born had things gone differently on one very critical night. On Christmas Eve, 1876, Ira Sankey was taking a steamboat up the Delaware River. Once again, his fame and notoriety had preceded him, and while he was on deck, several people recognized him and asked him to sing a song for them. Sankey wanted to oblige and took a moment to think of a song. In his mind, he wanted to sing a Christmas song, but a familiar melody rose to the surface of his heart a song that he had sung so many times, yet its enduring truth was such a comfort to his heart. His deep baritone voice sounded strong over the hum of the steam engines. Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. In thy pleasant pastures feed us. For our use thy folds prepare. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us, thine we are. Blessed Jesus, blessed Jesus, Thou hast bought us, thine we are. The satisfied crowd clapped with loud applause and smiles of gratitude as Sankey finished the final chorus. When the crowd began to disperse, a man emerged from the group and introduced himself to Sankey. As they stood and exchanged pleasantries, Ira took note of the man's southern accent. The stranger asked him if he had ever served in the Union Army. Yes, as a matter of fact, I did. I enlisted in the spring of 1860. Then the man asked a rather peculiar question. Do you remember doing picket duty on a bright moonlit night in 1862 while singing the very same song you just sang? Rather uneased by the question, Ira replied, Yes, I do. Were you there too? The man slowly shook his head yes, and then began to tell his story. Yes, he was there, out in the woods, near a Union Army encampment just outside of Sharpsburg, Maryland. He was watching the soldiers that night from a grove of trees just across the creek. As a Confederate sniper, he was looking for that right opportunity to take out a Union soldier. He waited until twilight, depending on a bright full moon to light his target. 
Finally, an evening sentry came out to stand guard. He decided that this poor soul would be his target. He rested his rifle against an oak tree as he waited for the right moment. Finally, the guard came out in full view of the moonlight. He pulled the hammer of the rifle back slowly and put the soldier in his sights. With a deep breath, he let out a slow, calming exhale. His pulse slowed. His focus sharpened. His finger rested on the cooled trigger as he added more and more pressure. It was at that precise moment that the sentry did something surprising. Out of the blue, he raised his eyes toward heaven and began to sing. His rich, deep voice filled the valley with the words, Savior, like a shepherd, lead us. Much we need thy tender care. The sniper stopped, relaxing from his tense, concentrated stance. He thought to himself, I'll just let him finish singing. He's mine anyways. I can't miss from this distance. But the more he listened, the more he thought of his beloved Christian mother. She used to sing that very same song in his boyhood home. She had died some years back, and the song brought a flood of memories to his heart. By the time the guard had finished the last stanza, the sharpshooter's eyes were filled with tears. It was useless to aim at the Yankee soldier now. The emotional Confederate simply lowered his rifle, turned and quietly walked back to his regiment that night. The stranger told Sankey that when he sang that song tonight, he knew without a doubt that this was the voice of the man that he could not shoot so long ago. The man began to heave with tears and began to pour out his heart about his wayward life after the war. He then pleaded with Sankey to lead him to this shepherd that he was singing about. Sankey put his arm around his former enemy, an enemy that was a hair's breadth away from ending Ira's life, and shared with him the wondrous story of God's redeeming love. And in that hour, they both worshipped a great shepherd that led them safely into the fold. Sankey received a precious Christmas gift, the gift of seeing firsthand in his life what no doubt happens on countless occasions in the life of every single individual on this planet at one time or another, the gift of tracing God's hand of care and protection through a world teeming with unseen and unrealized dangers, the gift of realizing that there is truly a God who knows what dangers lurk around every twist and bend of life and is able to rescue us from the very teeth of evil. The second stanza of Ira Sankey's fateful song that night reads, We are thine, thou dost befriend us, be the guardian of our way. For those who have received and believed upon the Good Shepherd, the shepherd that gives his life for the sheep, Jesus Christ, we can say he is the guardian of our way. We can say with David 
the shepherd boy who would one day become king. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. And as always, thanks for listening.